Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Palmer uh, from Stockholm, Sweden. He's the director of the ECMO ICU at the Karolinska Institute. Was the director. Yes, the new director, Lars, here. It's, uh, it's a pleasure having him as well. And I had the pleasure of uh, joining them for, for dinner last night. And thank you both for uh, offering up your time to, to join us here at Maryland. It's a real honor. Just to give you a little background um, from, uh, regarding Dr. Palmer, he's really been one of the international leaders in mechanical ventilation, ECMO, and, and minimal sedation, high physical activity, family-centered care, all the things that we're doing now, he was doing years ago. And, um, and to give you further background, the Karolinska Institute was the first center in 1988 to have a dedicated ECMO ICU for VV support. Um, and starting with kids and progressing to adults. And um, they've been doing awake ECMO since that time and long run ECMO since 93 and tr ECMO transports all over the world for decades now. And um, he's really one of the leaders of the field and a, and a great guy and thank you for coming. <laughs> okay, thank you. Oh, I have this one on, that's good. And you can use this to Yeah, dance. good. Um, yeah, we have been done, started 87 actually. So we've done it for 30 years and one interesting thing that no one told us that the patient has to be asleep on ECMO. We missed that thing. So when we started, we have a respiratory patient awake all the time, and suddenly we put one on first case on ECMO. And we were so interested by the machine. We were looking for the blood on the floor all the time. And after one hour, when you raised up, the patient was lying there, looking around, <laughs> totally, totally comfortable. Should I sedate him? I know. It looks stupid. So I went back to my machine again. And so actually we have had a <coughs> wake patient from, from the beginning because we were a little bit stupid and they haven't actually told us that is a problem. So um, ECMO, yeah, you know ECMO here. I was walking around. It's like you're running ECMO like hell in this place. <laughs> yes, good. Uh, and also I think it's good that you run so much because uh, volume makes... Perfect, because uh, when you have so much, you will suddenly have all the knowledge in the walls, and that is really, when you come to that level, it's very, very good, actually. So 2000, <coughs> we started with our own uh, ICU beds in, in 2005, 2010. We have a new ICU, and now we have even a new ICU with a new hospital. The construction of the hospital we are not satisfied with, but anyhow, that it is. Rails registry is important. Uh, uh, of course, you will report everything to the ELSA registry. I move over a little bit of this picture because it's too many. Uh, septic shock was actually in contraindication for a long time. Everyone said you shouldn't put septic shock patient on because coagulation problems and so on. But actually today, septic shock is the most common patient we have. We, are, we don't have the cardiac patient in our unit. They are in the, beside us in the cardiac ICU. But in our unit, we mostly run uh, uh, infection, respiratory failure. But as you see here, it's, we don't run VV. That's because it's respiratory. It's quite a lot of VA ECMO because many of these patients in, is into cardiac shock too. But also if you look... <laughs> We look much for SEPS3 scoring, estimated mortality risk of 85%, but still we have 40% mortality. So it's a hell of a difference with this uh, ECMO uh, treatment we have. Um, the problem with septic shock, when, if you lose uh, the system vascular resistance, actually ECMO doesn't make that much good for you, but they are very seldom clean 
system vascular resistant patient compared to cardiogenic shock patients. So we probably will put them on uh, VA ECMA. Some of them we actually cannot get uh, system vascular pressure on anyhow. Uh, there are discussions, especially in the pediatric cases, that you should central cannulation, but we never do that. It's like, I don't think even if we pump, normally we pump four, five, six liters, but even if we come up to 10 liters, you don't get the pressure if you have totally loss of system vascular resistance. I think you, it's still just nothing coming out. Probably you have to pump 40 liters or something like that, and we cannot do that. So, uh, so we, never, we never central cannulate our uh, patient normally. This was something I heard from an Australian doctor. When should you put them on? <coughs> it's actually hard to say. But in Australia, they find it was quite a good machine. It helped us a lot. So he just said probably a little bit for fun. Maybe we should start to think of an ECMA machine already as a second inotropic drug. Maybe third, but not the second. But anyhow, the way we should look at ECMO in the future is not, it's not that complicated. It's quite simple way, <laughs> and it's quite easy way to, to do things. So we should not be too uh, hesitating to put them on ECMO. Because if they go on ECMO, it's a hell of a difference if they have had um, heart arrest or not. You have to put them before the heart arrest because that messes up everything. Oh, I'll go back there. Um, so indication is really a problem. So we have a lung indication, of course, with the uh, when we look at them. We go for our um, um, PF ratio. Uh, now it's going up to 80 from the CISA study, and still we are... It's very hard from old center to go into new indications. So we actually go to a 65 anyhow. So our mean PF ratio will be 50 in our patient. We should take the step and be more open and put a uh, patient on earlier. But it's in the walls. It takes a long time to, to change behavior. But also, we have to look into inotropic drugs. We should put them on before they get too much of it, actually, because we have to have some kind of cardiac shock indication, too, on this patient. Uh, acidosis important, lactate is important. Multi-organ failure, what that is, I don't know, really know. Uh, but this is quite common that we have two, three cardiac arrests on the patient. That means that it's too late. We should have put them on before the first cardiac arrest. Uh, so they will have extreme plasma leakage. Echo shows. Some people say if you have an uh, e uh, ejection fraction of less than 20, put them on. We sit there and looking at, at them even if they have 10. Maybe or maybe not. So we are a little bit late in our indication all the time, and it, it's, it's actually very hard to, to do, take that step. Well, in Sweden, we transport all the patients. So whatever they call us from Sweden, it's like four or five hours to get there and put the, the patient on, on the pump. So it's, it's a little bit tricky. This is a typical <coughs> cardiogenic shock patient. Not a typical, it's a very extreme cardiac shock patient. Flat um, um, arterial curve for 18 hours. Uh, and if you can see there, his saturation is 65. We have stopped the, um, the ventilator because his plasma leakage was so extreme, so we have to clamp the tube. 
like that. Otherwise, all the plasma would going out. He used his lungs as a plasma phoresis filter. After eight hours, his heart starts um, to open up uh, the aortic valve, and um, within a few days, we can open up his plasma leakage is away. We clean up the lungs, and I think it took 14 days to get him out from here. Interesting with the <coughs> with the aortic valve doesn't open up. When you get when do you get nervous? Is it like immediately? I don't know when I should get nervous because if your aortic valve doesn't open up, you will have still standing blood in the left chamber. Do you put in a vent? Here you have a thoracic surgical department very close, so you can probably do it easily. But in our unit, who didn't was connected to the thoracic circuit, it was not so easy. So actually, we probably can stand at 12. We start to get nervous at 12 hours probably and very nervous after, after a day. Then I ask Alan Combs from Paris. <coughs> they have quite a lot of them. When do you get really nervous <coughs> if you have a not open valve? And he said, three days. Surprises me a lot. After three days, I will get really, really <laughs> nervous. So uh, without putting in a vent, they accept it. I'm not sure what, uh, this, this is a very tricky question for us. And on the other hand, um, uh, what shall you do? You take down the afterload and so on. But actually, we can actually push here so the blood will move around a little bit. So I think, I think three days good that you have that distance, but I think we will start to do something serious about it within, within a day for sure. But this is really one of the tricky questions we have here. Uh, cannulation, we'll look for that a little bit. Many people <coughs> cannulate from the growing. We actually cannulate from here, we cannula from here, and then we have the uh, returning cannula in the growing. Because it's more stable running, we don't have so much in, in, in the tubing. Uh, but the most important thing is actually, you have to try to find the blue blood when you cannulate. Because uh, flow is everything. And if you look at this picture, this is a picture from uh, uh, CardioHelp. Here they take out the blood here. What happens? They give the blood up here and the heart beats, the blood will go over the leg, coming back up and coming out here again. If you take out the blood from uh, below the heart, you will probably have very red blood in this one, because not much consumption in the leg. The problem if the lungs goes totally white out because of long edema or something like that, you will have 40% saturation up here and you will 100% saturation down here. So you actually have to put the position where you take the blood up here. And without any lung function, you will probably have 70% saturation up here. Unless you pump all the blood all the way up to your head and arm. But that's another question. we come to that later. So try to find the blue blood when you do the cannulation. So we want, if you go from downstreams, you should probably put up a cannula up there. Uh, <coughs> Then, also, we, yeah, we take it from this side and go that side. People talk about recirculation. It isn't that big problem, actually, because we never, more or less, never see the oxygen delivery goes down because we increase the blood flow. It still goes up, but not as much as we actually want. But anyhow, 
uh, and you have a more stable si situation because it's a more stable area in here. Uh, well, yeah, and then you have the arterial femoral arterial artery. It's absolutely a risk for the leg when you put it in. So we most of the time put some uh, cannula downstream, but sometimes we just put uh, measuring on, on the foot, take the blood pressure in, in the leg, and if it's more than 35 millimeters of mercury, we can say it's okay. But then you have a dynamic situation. The patient loses the blood pressure. The um, flow outside the cannula down the leg is not uh, so good. So you can... You have to be very observed on, the, on this thing. Uh, so most of the time we just put a retrograde cannula down so that it feels more safe actually. Uh, but then if you look at this cannula, if you have a 15 French cannula pumping, f this is, we use a Levantronics machine, pump 5 liters of flow, the pressure drop over just the cannula now is 345. Actually, I couldn't get it up to 5 liters because uh, I was, this is maximum for the machine. So you have 345 millimeters of mercury pressure drop over the narrowing on, on the arterial cannula. Uh, and so that cannula is probably too small if you should go full flow. Then you look at the 17 French cannula. Same thing, five liters, and then you have 100 in, I don't see it here, oh, 100 or 49, yeah? This is probably, then you have to add patient's blood pressure <coughs> and the resistance over the oxygenator, that is not much. So with a 17 French cannula, it would be enough for most patients, actually. But sometimes you hear that people put in a 19 French cannula and a 21 French cannula, why? <coughs> The 19 has 82, and the, the other has 49. This is, you don't need these big cannulas in the artery. You can go with the 17, it's good enough, because the only thing, it disturbs the flow down to the leg. So if you don't have a dream big guy, which you can have here in the United States, you can probably, it's enough with 17 French cannulas. We don't have these guys at home. <laughs> so, so don't go too, too big either, because it just makes more, uh, no, more disturbance. And then you have the thoracic surgeon. We, are, we don't have them in our ward. They love the multi-stage cannula. And then they put it up like this. And it's quite good flow. And they don't have to be, to be so big either. And very good flow in these cannulas. And everyone is a little bit happy. But... <coughs> If we put the multi-stage cannula in an MRI machine and pump four liters, you can see all the blood comes from the first, second, and third hole. This is just plastics in, in the patient. So you, you don't use that part. So the, this cannula who is this long, you think, is actually this long. Because the rest you don't use. The side hose is so big, so everything goes out here. That means that you take red blood out again. So multi-stage cannula is a little bit the same thing as having a very short cannula inside. Upcoming problem with the thoracic surgical department all the time, they have 40% saturation in the head, totally lung edema, and, and uh, they cannot get it going. So we take over the patient, 
put a new cannula up here, take the blood from the right atrium and take out the multistate cannula. That is something we do now and then, and we are discussing it, and uh, next time they forgot again. <laughs> but it's quite nice, we, it's a nice job to do. Uh, so cannulation is important, but try to find the blue blood. Always thinking, where is the blue blood and how should I get it? Saturation is something I used to go around the world and say, oh, it's not so important, actually. <coughs> and people look at me, hey, come on. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, we look at if we look at oxygen delivery, it's actually, we use this, just saturation, hemoglobin, cardiac output, and you have the delivery. And then you have these uh, well-known curves. We deliver something out here, and we can actually deliver down here, and the only thing that happens is this, uh, venous saturation goes down. But when you come to this point, then you will have lactate coming up. And this is, if we look at the newborns, they are consuming like six milliliters per kilo per minute in an adult, three to four. That is normal. Sepsis, we say more than, could be add extra 50%. Some of them is actually taking less. It's not for sure that just because you have a sepsis, you consume more oxygen. Some, especially some of the newborns, they can go down to two milliliters of oxygen uh, consumption per milliliter uh, without problem. And then uh, three days later, they come up to six again when the sepsis goes over. The problem with this is the, here we have the curve. Normally, we are delivering something out here. It's quite common in our unit that we have totally white out lung. That means that the blood you take out from here has 70% saturation. And that means that the blood that goes over the lungs comes back on the left side and goes out again. Doesn't get any oxygen from the lung. And that means that you have 70% saturation in your finger. We need this 30% different. Otherwise, you cannot give him enough oxygen for his consumption will automatically go down to, to the level of his consumption. So that's why we have patient lying there with 70% saturation and, and 65 too. And we don't worry so much about it, actually. Because if you look at this, 70% saturation here, it's very popular today to have low hemoglobin. Seven is very popular. And with seven in hemoglobin and 90% saturation looks good on the screen, everyone is happy, then you're down here. You're actually much lower than we are, we are in the oxygen content of the blood. <coughs> and then you have this, what's the theoretical value? Absolutely theoretical value. Don't play with it. <coughs> Everything's perfect, circulation is perfect. You can actually come down to 35% saturation, still alive. Uh, but this is a burn patient in our unit consuming a lot of oxygen, like 430 milliliters of oxygen per minute. And he was actually lying here with 55% saturation, awake, and nothing happened. Lactate is okay, everything is okay. So if we look at him like this, uh, his oxygen content was 8.4. If you have your seven hemoglobin of 7 and 90% saturation, you're actually 8.4 instead of 8.8. So he, even with this, he has a higher oxygen content in the blood compared to this 
hemoglobin value with 90% saturation. Look at this screen, everyone is happy. Look at this in everyone. Oh, Jesus, give me a break. But this is actually, we have to look in oxygen delivery uh, uh, and content much more than the saturation. We also have to remember that we have a rated flow on the oxygenator. An oxygenator doesn't deliver unlimited amount of oxygen. Uh, it used to be something like 300 milliliters per minute one oxygenator can deliver. So the rated flow is actually coming in with 75% oxygen and go out with 100% oxygen. So uh, if, you, if they consume more than this, you actually have to put in two oxygenators instead of one. So if especially burn patient or very big patient could be into that situation. <coughs> and when we deliver this, um, normally we consume something like 240 milliliters per minute. Uh, and this burn patient was actually consuming that much. Uh, I'll go back to them. Interesting with this, I don't think I have that picture here. If you take this milliliter, oxygen milliliter per minute, and multiplicate it with 4.86, that is changing oxygen consumption into calories <coughs> uh, with the RQ of 0.86 or something like that. That means that this patient consumes 1,700 kilocalories per day and he consumes uh, 3,000 kilocalories per day. So re always related to uh, your oxygen consumption. So if you have someone who is consuming a lot, you also have to give him a lot of uh, nutrition. You have this for uh, anesthesia guys from Ireland. Went up to Mount Everest, probably have read this. It's quite funny, actually. One of the guys has saturation of 34.4. Hemoglobin is not extreme. The other one has 43. Lactate was 2.2.9 on 8,400 meters. So actually, you can, you can actually live with quite low saturation. But then everything else, has, circulation has to be perfect. And also consumption has to be perfect. <laughs> so. It's, it's possible. I met these guys in, in uh, Ireland, and they are still working as an um, anesthesia doctor, and there's nothing wrong with their brain and something like that. It's, they look totally normal, actually. Uh, but still very, very interesting paper they come up with, there, I think. Uh, we had another problem. <laughs> Went up to the north of Sweden. Uh, it was a very 60-year-old guy who was very sick in pneumonia. Went up there, and then we come up there. They said, oh, by the way, He's a Jehovah's Witness. Oh, shit. <laughs> if they told us before, we haven't go up, of course. Now you're standing there very far up in the north with this 60 year Obviously, he's dying tonight. No problem with that. And he's Jehovah's Witness, and we are, what shall you do? I said, oh, I don't know. I said, cut down the tubings as short as possible. Put them on, and we will learn a lot. <laughs> for sure, <laughs> because we couldn't give him blood, plasma, or platelets. So we put him on very rapidly. He went down to hemoglobin of five. So he was lying there with five in hemoglobin and saturation of 60% in 20 days. If you count for this, this is actually oxygen delivery. His consumption was 2.4 milliliters per kilo per minute. 
it's less than three. But still, it worked. We changed the uh, machine three times. Uh, and we, um, but then we took all the blood from the old machine and, and put in a new one. We counted every hemoglobin. There. You should go in there. Yes, please. <laughs> but, and then we actually were giving him um, EPO. He got more EPO than all the bicyclists in Europe at the same time. <laughs> it didn't go up anything. He get um, magnesium, iron, everything. At the end, I called the ski team in Sweden and asked, do you know anyone who's good in doping in, in Finland? <laughs> uh, at that time, they didn't know anyone. I need help. I need a professional there. <laughs> but anyhow, he was lying on ECMO for 44 days, surviving, coming out. And then afterwards, we realized EPO is a very small molecule, and he has been on dialysing all the time. So we have put in millions of money into the dialysing machine, into the waste there. So that was probably a big value in the waste, but he didn't get, react anything. So we learned slowly, so that you, can, you can always think of that. But also think about hypoxemia is low saturation. It's not the same thing as hypoxia. Hypoxia is actually low oxygen content in the tissue. Hypoxemia is low oxygen in the blood. It's absolutely something different. So looking more into oxygen delivery, oxygen consumption, and, and actually why we are delivering four or five times more than we need, no one knows, probably. But it's probably this lion who is coming after us in the woods of, of evolution reason or something that we are always running from him. Uh, I think the cardiac output is the most important factor, actually. <clears throat> and also, we have some problems here. If we put a patient on VA ECMO or VV ECMO, they have lots of anotropic. Suddenly, you can reduce it immediately. Saturation is the same. Everything looks the same. But still, why can we reduce uh, the inotropes immediately? So many times when we put them on ECMO outside the hospital, Within two hours, we come home with no inotropes. Very, we don't have any really good explanation for that. You can say that we bring down the pressure in the ventilator a little bit. No, that doesn't make the difference. If we have more oxygen in, in the venous blood, that doesn't explain it because the pulmonary hypertension and resistance there comes actually from the alveolus because if, if that would re regulate it from the venous saturation, we... Every time we get a pneumonia, we, we will get absolutely desaturated because the blood, the body puts the blood to the airfield area. So <coughs> it could not be that either. So we actually don't know. In the long run, we actually also have pulmonary hypertension when we have this very uh, lung with no, no air in at all. So sometimes we have to go into right-sided heart failure and then we have to convert them to VA ECMO. Uh, and then it's better we go back to VV ECMO again. So it, it, you don't look at VV and VA as something totally different. It's a tool we have in, in, in the ward, and we can we use the thing you need to all the time. But it's low saturation. When you're on ECMO, you can go like that. On a ventilator, don't play with it, because if you're here, and you make a suction or turn the patient around, he will stop immediately. 
So just on ECMO, you can accept this lower saturation, not on a ventilator, because that's a total. He, he goes here because we are giving him oxygen all the time. But if the pump stops here, <coughs> immediately, <coughs> within seconds, you're down there. So it's totally different uh, physiology here when you go on an ECMO machine compared to the ventilator. So be careful with that. But on the other hand, when you talk about <coughs> possibility to accept lower saturation, a paper comes out from Mickelson and Derek Angus. They talk about hypoxemia on ALI patient who get a cognitive failure because of that. Then, of course, I have to read the paper carefully. If I look at the <coughs> hypoxemia, the normal group has 86 impairment group has but the spread is not so big. Saturation in both groups is 95. Do you think we can get cognitive failure with 95 in saturation? Probably not. So this is typical Excel research, research I used to say. They put all the numbers in, and here they find something significant. PO2 was mean there compared to that. But PF ratio was actually better in the impairment group compared to so this paper is very saturation 95. Very strange paper. And then if you look for heavy alcohol use, 3 to 13, and that was not at all significant. I, would, I think they should look into this much more than the saturation, actually. So this paper come out, and I don't think, because even the pilot in the plane has lower saturation than this when he's running plane. Uh, we have looked into our patient for uh, cognitive, very extensive, for I think it was four, six, eight hours, every patient had been going through. And we can find them, they are spread like that. Oops. I used to say they are just a little bit smarter than the other ones. Uh, <laughs> but also compare the group with who has been on hypoxemic, compare to <clears throat> we cannot see anything different with these patients. So we, are, we can have this patient awake, we can see that they are feeling well, and we are not worried about this lower saturation. Of course, <coughs> it's like we don't want to have them on 70%. 90%, we are very happy with that too. <coughs> but the problem is, if you cannot easily get 90%, should we start to do things with the trade? Should we put in more cannulas? Should we pump in another way? What shall we do? We, of course, we will pump as much as we can, maximum pump flow. We increase the hemoglobin, increase maybe the cardiac output. Try to keep some time, just a small bit of tidal volumes make 70% to 80%, like 100 milliliters of uh, tidal volumes will actually make 80% immediately. And, but to start with this, Go vena arterial equin in, in, in the neck with the subclavian artery. It's absolutely a risk for uh, embolus to the brain. As soon as you divide flow, you have a Y connector here, and you will have clots starting in the Y connector separation. Extremely dangerous. And suddenly that clot will move in on the venous side or the arterial side, and then you have destroyed the patient because he has an embolus in the brain. If you can little bit accept this lower saturation. You can start to behave different too. You have a pneumothorax. Normally we put in a pleural drainage. Yep. 
And then in the evening, we have five liters of blood here. And then we call the surgeon. He, we used to call it, we do lots of mistakes, and then we call the surgeon to fix it. <laughs> it's very simple. <coughs> I used to say, well, I'll, not, I'll take that with another picture. <coughs> because if you can accept that, you can actually take him to sleep, uh, take him off the ventilator for two, three days, and just let it be. After two, three days, you can put, on, put the ventilator on again. And during these two, three days, his lungs collapse totally and your saturation will be 70%. Two or three days later, put it in, and then you start to, uh, the lung can come back again. So you don't have to go into the OR uh, four days in a row because you put in a pleural drainage. This is <coughs> really one of the reasons I... You see here, for us, this is quite common. We have um, um, influenza, staphylococcus with PVL, and then the lung melts down like this. And here this patient has quite a lot of fluid outside. Someone was, w uh, want to take away the fluid, and they put in a very thin CV line up here, <coughs> somewhere. So we just take away the fluid. In the evening, five liters of blood. You can see a little white spot there. With the needle, he has touched a vessel, and it starts to bleed, and it bleeds the hole. So I used to say, when we do this, <coughs> we should actually... So this ended up like 20 liters of blood loss for operation. So when we do this, I used to say, send the bottle of wine home to a surgeon's wife and some nice cheeses because it's much better than she is in good mood when he comes home because he will not come home in four, four evenings now because this is always going on in the evening. We make the operation. So think of her and, and because it's better to give her something than give the surgeon anything. <laughs> so... Um, then, long-run ECMOs. This is a typical curve for a long-run ECMO. No tidal volumes fong that long. And suddenly, within two weeks, you get up. Why do we have... We learned this because the same thing as I started with. We didn't know that they should sleep. Uh, if you don't know that they should sleep, they are awake. So most, if you look at registry, more or less, everyone cut them off after 30 days. Very few patients after 30 days uh, in the registry of 2008. Today, people run much longer. But 30 days, they cut them off. <coughs> but after 30 days, if you're standing there with a the patient awake, it's totally different. Because when you come in the Monday morning, he say hello to you. And he more or less communicate, how was your weekend? I'm not going to kill you today, but maybe tomorrow, but not today. <laughs> so... We went on and went on and went on. And suddenly, surprisingly, we had no idea of this. Surprisingly, boom, they open up the lungs and can come off ECMO easily. So this was a very surprise for us a long time ago. Now we see it over and over again. Uh, and <coughs> this guy, actually, you have on that picture, he's here. He's his, that is, it was 20-year-old birthday, so he gets some champagne, of course. Uh, but he was actually 68 days on ECMO. He had a saturation of 65 for 45 days in a row. Totally awake, playing computer games. Should I be worried? Not much, because he was quite good at the computer games too. <coughs> <laughs> so it ended up, we just let him be like that, and that, then suddenly his lung starts to open up, and then you can see the curves for saturation goes up like this. 
this is the guy. This is actually two months later. Helt vanligt. He's on the gym and trying to recover. So I came to see had. Jag hade droppen tills den tog slut så jag kunde inte so, gå längre. If you think about it, he could not be brain damaged. Så att jo jag tycker att det går inte långt If you are brain damaged. Om man skulle ut så hade det gått mycket He was two months he was in a gym to get uh, to recover actually. So hop there by him. So this is uh, Something we think about, we, are, we don't get so nervous about that. Then I probably, I take more than he do, but I'm older also. <laughs> so, the reason also why I'm worried about this is actually, it comes uh, with age. If you look at the oxygenator after the, um, on the arterial side, after, after the run, it looks like this. Quite many clots sitting here. And that's something comes with age, probably when you get older. You're happy that they survive from the beginning, but after a while, you, what the hell have I been doing with my patient, actually? Uh, because if this gets loose, easily can come to your brain. So I think we have to start to think about, should we send machine blood into the brain or not? I think that is something you have to solve in the future. Is it safer? to go with lower saturation and not pump the blood all the way up to the brain? Or should we, just for the saturation, pump the blood all the way up to the brain? It's very, very, because you, it looks like this. Still standing hot, you will pump it up to the coronars. If you're worried about saturation on VI ECMO, you will pump it up here, so you have good saturation in your arms and the brain. But on the other hand, in the coronars, you will have quite low saturation without any lung function, of course. Uh, and so your coronars will have 70% saturation, even if you will hope that it will be higher. But this volume is so small. So if you pump this much, then the, <coughs> the tubings will fall over the cannula. And, and then everyone in the room will give more volume. They give more volume. And then you have this situation, the saturation in the brain will go down, and also in your hand. And then suddenly you increase the pump flow, so you come to there again, and then it starts to If you do this, and also if you, if you give volume just to fix these numbers, in the end of the week, the patient will have 20 liters too much fluid in him, and the lung will never open up. So it's actually probably better to slow down the pump flow, put a dialyzing machine, take away the, the edema in the lungs, and then when the lungs open up, your saturation will come up here this way. So this is actually something you have to find out in the future. It's a little bit too late for me, but is it safer to have lower saturation than machine blood in your brain? It's a really, really hard question to, to answer. So. This is so funny. I think we, we have lots of suggestions. If you read all the papers, you should have high P, prone positioning, recruitment, on ECMO. This is on ECMO now. High frequency and everything like that. And everyone has come up with the solution. But think about it. 
Being a tidal volume doesn't make a healthy lung. It's like healthy lung makes a big tidal volume. It's not the opposite. So do we think that we can actually have a pump that pumps air into your lung and the lung should get healthy from it? It's too stupid. If you have a big pneumonia, so on, it's something, this is a biological process going on by cell to cell in there. In no way we can interfere with that, with the ventilator. We can put the ventilator in whatever you want. It doesn't, you can destroy the lung if you do too hard, but it's no perfect way to ventilate them. I think, I think mostly you should give it up. Make it comfortable for the patient and don't think you can figure it. It's so common that people put um, um, ECMO patient in prone position. Why? If you have them awake, make it comfortable for them, give them some coffee or our patient drink wine sometimes. It's very nice. <laughs> so just make it comfortable and then you have to wait for the biological process to go on. And when it's ready for the lung to open up, it will open up. It's no way we have to, I think that comes with age two. In, when you're younger, you want to fix the problem. You want to fix the patient. After a while, you sit there. I cannot do anything, actually. I just have to sit here waiting. So patient will fix himself, whatever we do. So be careful. We manipulate the patient too much. This is a paper from uh, Paris for septic shock patients. They have, uh, they do femoral cannulation. You see quite high SEPS3 scoring with 71% surviving. And this is our patient group from 12 to 14, the same group. Here, obviously, too many CPRs before ECMO, not okay. <coughs> uh, organ failures affected, many organ failures affected, actually up to six and a half. But still, survival rate is enormously high, even if they have an estimated mortality risk of 83. So it, it's, but I think we cannot do something about it. And also, uh, I think, where, where is that one? Oh, oh. I think uh, Mike Hines actually, the picture is gone here. Uh, Mike Hines did something interesting. He was looking into a group of patients who, was, if they didn't have any pre-existing lung disease, they will not die on ECMO because lack of lung recovery. But if they have uh, pre-existing lung disease, they can die from lack of recovery. That means that you can die from a brain bleeding on ECMO if, if you just have infection, virus, or bacteria. But if you have a rheumatic disease and so on, you can go into lung fibrosis and then you will not recover the lung. But it's a clean infection. You should probably you can wait very long time to get the lung to see the lung to recover because the underlying disease is, is, is a good one for the patient. So I think <coughs> that is important. Uh, so the, yeah, this is a little bit about uh, why they die. Uh, uh, this is a, something from the swine flu area. We have 13 patients, 12 surviving, 92% surviving. Actually, in Sweden, just 32 patients died. Three per million died in Sweden. That's not much. Most of them actually died at home because we didn't want them into the hospital. So we, they say, stay home, stay home, stay home. And then in the morning, they have get influenza, lung edema, and died at home in their own bed. So very few died actually in the ICU during the swine flu. So that is 
was quite um, surprising. But also, if you have them on ECMO, what should you do with the lung if you can do whatever? You don't need them. You can, you can recruit, you can do lots of things with them. It's actually, I don't think we should do so much. Some comfortable, some easy. Probably we have to suction. We don't extubate them other, otherwise, and it could be a cystic fibrosis patient who should cuff. Or um, if, if clean lung with a heart patient, you can actually extubate. But if they have infection, you should probably make a suction. You have to suction them somehow in it. But we wake them up. And also, remember, the best sedative is a little bit low carbon dioxide. Because if you, this is, this is my own problem. I get a little bit happy when I see the tidal volumes goes up a little bit. So then I let the carbon dioxide go up a little bit more. And then even a little bit more, and I get a little bit happy. What, I'm, what the shit I'm doing? I push the patient in front of me. He's breathing for his life. And I get happy. Hey, come on. He doesn't get happy. So it's stupid to, to force him to breathe too much because I like to see the tidal volume. It's much better to let it go down, make it comfortable. Because if you do that, then you have high carbon dioxide and a lot of sedation. So look into comfortable. It should be very, very comfortable for the patient, actually. This is how we, I know that you have them awake here too. It, it's so good. But this was one of the swine flu patients who messed up England. She was from Scotland. And there's another thing. She was pregnant, 22 years old, pregnant 26 weeks. And uh, they called Lester during the swine flu. And, and uh, she has been 10 days in a ventilator. And then say no. Because... They go for the seven days limit. We have never done that. We don't care a shit about seven days limit for rent. It's just stupid. So then they called us and we went down to Scotland, took the woman up to Stockholm and treated her there. The problem for England was BBC was coming after them, <coughs> after the girl. So we had BBC around us who was reporting down to England all the time. Quite messy. But anyhow, and it's, um, it worked well. And also, we called around the world and asked, what should we do? We have a 26 weeks baby inside her. Uh, and we called all the big places. Oh, take out the baby immediately. Everyone said that. But when you ask things like that, you should also ask, how many has you seen being done? None. They were telling us the feeling they had about it. So we said, we don't know. We don't do anything, let the baby be, just go on with ECMO and see what's happening. 22 days later, she come off ECMO and with the baby still there and we could send her home to Scotland and eight weeks later, she delivered a totally healthy baby. Even if she has been on saturation on 75 for a while, the baby didn't care about that either. So, this is a wet lung. <coughs> We have two lung problems. The wet lung is, uh, then they come into ECMO within three to six days. If it's the, the one who's been on a ventilator a longer time, they are probably not just a wet lung. They go more into consolidated lung. So this one, you get better within two weeks. That could take two months. So, and I don't think it's so important how we treat the patient. Just keep them going, keep them alive. 
and make it, don't do extreme things. I think that is the biggest problem. Because, as I said before, the consolidated lung looks like this. How can we ventilate this lung? It's just forget about it. Just wait. All these cells will go into apoptosis. And when they do that, suddenly you have an alveoli here. And then you come there, 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 there. So we cannot actually high peep, whatever. That's, that's absolutely no different. And then you have these curves again. This is another patient. Comes like that, two weeks later, up like that. So that's a, that's a boy again. When we look in, this is PCP patient with the leukemia on ECMO, come off ECMO with 23% lung capacity. Within a year, they will be quite normal lung capacity. So it, the lung takes long time to recover. Another girl, 14 years old, look at her lungs, melts down like this. Looks horrible, actually. And, and actually, here I called the transplant team because I couldn't even imagine that she could live with this lung. Three-fourths of the lung was totally destroyed. 19 days on ECMO coming off. Two months later, now she is home, home. And she is visiting a thoracic surgeon. They look at the CT scan, and it looked like that. And they have a discussion, should we take away this lung? Because this will just make a lot of problem for you. You will have infection, and it will be totally horrible. <coughs> but the surgeon was smarter than that. He, he asked her, how much problem do you have? I cough one or two times a little bit in the night, not more. And then he said, I'm going to do anything with you. Because if I start to make an operation here, I can kill you. So the, he didn't do anything. And then six years later, I have some other CT scans during the time. The part that was so bad looks like some kind of lung tissue, still has a hole here. But the lung has actually recovered quite well without doing nothing. So I think we, we should, this is also a thing we do when we run ECMO. If you have an idea in your head and not you see it, you don't see it on the patient. Don't solve that problem. Because 95% of the problem you don't have to solve anymore because they don't going to happen. So be careful, just be, this is another part of it. So, oh, I can move over this. Oh, well, here is my kind's paper about uh, pre-existing lung disease. What you always should look for when we are dealing with this patient, they look for how many days on a ventilator. It doesn't matter so much, actually. The only thing that's important, the only thing who decide if you're going to survive or die, unless from complication, is the underlying disease. Absolutely the only thing that is important. You have to find out what is his real underlying disease. The rest of it is just waiting. <coughs> So, and, and it's, it's nothing, has nothing to do with Vili or things like that, actually. So it, we try to have them awake. We go for something like this, uh, relatively low pressure, 40% oxygen, but also always comfortable. So in conclusion, we can say in the long run ECMO, you should actually not worry so much it's not important how you ventilate it. Don't start to manipulate them. Don't think you can break up the lungs. Recruitment, no use. Proposition, no use. 
Comfort is the only thing that is important. And also, you do so much ECMO in this hospital now, and that's so good, because suddenly you get it into your walls. Because when you come to the stage when you, people start to look at the ECMO machine, that is my best friend, and not the enemy in the room. Then you start to do, take good decisions. Because if you are afraid of the machine, you will take uh, <coughs> Uh, wrong decisions because you try to get him off the machine. That is not the goal. The goal is to have a healthy lung. So I think when you have these numbers you have in this hospital, you must come to this feeling that this is actually our best friend in the room and not the enemy. So I think this is very, very good that you do the numbers. The worst ventilation, I said, when you talk about really, I have just discussed a lot with uh, Gattinoni about this, things like this. I find a guy in, in Ireland, 40 years old. He had a, do you do high frequency here? Not much. Ireland loves it. <laughs> so he had a mean airway pressure of 34, a delta P of 134. My, my machine do 90. So they have fixed it somehow. But the worst thing here is actually frequency. They have decreased the frequency to 3. So this is not even high frequency oscillation anymore. This is 180 breaths per minute. With this pressure setting, that means that the whole pressure will go in and out of the patient. So this means that this is to comparable to have 70 in peak pressure and 34 in peak for four weeks in a row. And they asked me what, I should do, what they should do with him because I was coming down with another patient. Uh, yes, I don't know. <laughs> I was just, what? <laughs> and, and then I tried to come out, tried to put them on a normal ventilator or something like that. But, but I try also, also to say, whatever you do, don't call me about this guy. <laughs> went home four days later, they called me. Hey, come on, didn't you understand? So I went down, put him on ECMO, and his CT scans looked like this. And he was an ECMO actually just for 12 days. Then he could come out uh, in a normal ventilator. But you can see lots of bubbles on the surface. More or less the whole lung was in a bubble. So probably these bubbles has saved the lung inside. Because it's like putting a lung in, in, a, in a bottle. You can actually put on much pressure. Nothing happens with the lung, actually. So he was. Of some reason, lucky to have this, but he's still alive, no problem, working well. It's, it's not so. Here I get a problem when, when these, um, especially all these Italian and Schlatsky and all these guys talk about you cannot have 26 impression in the ventilator because you destroy the lung. I don't believe that <coughs> because if he survives this, I think it's not so important because you also have the problem with. Friday night ventilation. If you have a patient, septic shock, plasma fluid in, and you are quite quickly up, up, up to 25 in peak pressure, 15 in peak, of course, if you need more pressure, put on more pressure. Today, people hesitate because he ha the guy has to be alive in the morning. That's the only thing that, uh, that's really important. So if you have to go to 30, 35 in pressure, I should go there immediately without problem. We have more problem with too low settings today than too high settings in our unit. OK, um, I'm way out of time. I don't know.
Okay. Yeah. Just a short. It, we have educational unit. That's quite interesting. Everyone in the unit can change an oxygenator or pump head within 30 seconds. Everyone can do that. And here, actually, I was just thinking of. This is a movie when we change a, a, a pump. Gamma stand up pump new. Here we change the pump. It takes 20 seconds to change the pump. This is a newborn baby because you can see the tubing. And it's quite interesting what happens when the pump stops. This is why we are training our staff doing this all the time. It takes the bubble, always open to the patient and not to the machine. And then we go. The nurses take the other side. The doctor takes the arterial side. Interesting what's happening with the saturation, actually. 20 seconds stop. And look to the saturation. When should you start to get nervous, actually, because it goes down quite low? And here it turns up again. 20 seconds stop. So that's why everyone involved has to be very aware of getting the machine running again. So, up, move on. Awake patient. Have you seen everyone who shows up uh, awake patient? This is actually the first one who was coming on the third book. Everyone has an ice cream in his hand. So we have a discussion. We think our green one is much better than your red one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> starts to be. This guy was on the internet on the stock market. Don't do that because he doesn't remember anything. You cannot come to the administration and have lost one million dollar in bad uh, stock market business. Forget about that. Then you're out. This guy would, was going for a um, transplant. He has his own uh, uh, website, so on. And this is the other guy. Oh, here we have the, yeah, we had a woman waiting for transplant. This is very short now. Uh, 229 days on ECMO. Uh, she was totally awake, drinking wine twice a week and taking food from the city and just lived quite a good life in our unit. And the family was fantastically good. And then after 160 days something, she told me that she wants to actually go home and take a cup of coffee in her garden. Okay, if you want to do that, we do that. So I called Lars. <laughs> and of course, we took her 200 kilometers north of Stockholm, up to her house, up her to a patio. <coughs> and then she was sitting here, actually. This is her mother and daughters, and all the neighbors was coming and going. So have a nice party there. And in the evening, we said, maybe it's time to go home again. So, so we took her home. I also wonder, why didn't we stay overnight? We didn't thought of it, I think. You, you have electricity and oxygen. Do you need more here in life? <laughs> I don't know. I think it was me. I actually want to go home. Yeah. <laughs> you have kids to take care. Your kids have to be taken care of. <laughs> but it would be possible. So in totally conclusion, uh, before you do something with this ECMO patient, think about it. I would say, take a cup of coffee and go out and think about it. Is it necessary? Is it harmless? You have to remember, you cannot fix the lung, whatever you do. It's a biological process going on. And if you just have a awake patient, 
with good antibiotics, just wait, 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 wait. Because the patient will survive by himself if we don't kill him with unnecessary action. And I think that is so important. Our biggest problem in our unit is more or less entertainment. ECMO is something routine, that's nothing to care about. Entertainment is much bigger problem to keep the patient in good mood and things like that. So I think that. So I finished there. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Any questions? Has anyone taken out the cannula? Yes. Actually, when they are awake, we had one who was five o'clock in the morning, wake up, and he grabbed the cannula. <laughs> the good thing with that was actually, it was our most experienced nurse who was on, on the foot end, and he was standing, what the hell are you doing, you stupid idiot? So he ran up to him, took the cannula from, from his hand, and put it back again. And then he has to stop up the machine and cover a little bit of taking about air and so on. But actually, the patient, uh, nothing happened with the patient. He recovered within a day. But the biggest problem, it took six months for the nurse to recover. <laughs> what? We had one in a CAT scan that we did the same thing. Yeah. Very, we resuture our cannulas every Thursday when we have them because we want to have the weekend and uh, the, our surgeon is checking the suture. If it's something questioned, they put a new suture. So it's for, yes, every Thursday we have that as a routine. It's quite good, I think. Any other question? Oh, that was my own question. <laughs> yeah? Can you stand this lower saturation? I don't know. We'll have to convince a lot of people to turn off the monitor. Yeah. I think that's the problem. I don't think you will go from high to 70 immediately. I think at, in time when you see 85, it's okay, and 80, then 80 will be okay, and at the end of the day, you will settle down and think.